Okay. Uh, good evening, brothers and sisters in the faith. Uh, we are so happy that you join us tonight uh, to study the words of our Father uh, through the Holy Scriptures. Now, we have many questions lined up. Before we get there, we ask everyone to please stand for our opening prayer. Everlasting Father. Yes, Father. Almighty Yahuwah Abba. Amen. Thank you so much for your blessing and protection. Yes, Father. Thank you for guiding and sustaining us with your mighty hand. Yes, Father. Thank you for thinking of us every day. Yes, Father. By your thoughts, O oh, Father, we are pleasantly guided at Amen. all times. We ask that you please accept our praise today. Yes, Father. And may you also please forgive our sins. Yes, Because we confess to you with repentant hearts yes, that we are sinners before you. Amen. Cleanse us with the power of your spirit yes. and make us worthy to be before your presence. Amen. Yahusha, our king, we thank you as well. Yes, we will Lord. study the words of our father as recorded in scripture throughout our study we ask that you please bless us to think like you yes and to live our life according to your ways Amen. please bless our hearts and our minds yes. that we will benefit fully from the study of scriptures Amen. father we believe that you have listened to our prayers yes we ask and beg everything in the name of our lord and savior yahushua hamashiach amen, amen. Okay, a pleasant good evening to everyone. Welcome to the Bible Questions and Answers brought to you by the Assembly of Yahusha. We are so happy that you joined us this evening to study the words of God. And what we're going to do uh, today is like before, we will look at some of viewer, uh, viewer mail, viewer questions concerning some of the things that affect our daily life. So let's begin with question number one. Actually, it's uh, two questions from the same person. Um, let's go to the first one. Uh, kindly check for in the Bible, the true meaning of the following verse, expel the wicked from among you. And number two, will children or infants who do not commit sin also perish on the day of judgment? So let's begin with number one concerning the verse, which says, expel the wicked from among you. I'm sure many of us are aware of this scriptural passage. So what does it mean according to the Holy Bible? Let's read the book of Corinthians 5, 12 to 13. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. And so that phrase, expel the wicked from among you, can be found in 1 Corinthians 5, Verse 13, take note, the one writing here is the Apostle Paul, and he addresses the assembly or church in Corinth. And he says to them that you must judge those who are inside. And once judgment has been made or a choice has been made, you are to expel the wicked man from among you. So indeed, the Bible speaks of an expulsion. This is why we, the assembly of Yahusha, also practice expulsion because it is according to the Holy Bible. Now, what does it mean, though, to be expelled? And what does it mean to judge those who are inside? And so we will answer first, what does it mean to be expelled? And who are those who are to be expelled? Apostle Paul specifically says, expel the wicked man from among you. He does not say expel those who ask questions about you. Right, but those who are wicked among you. And so what qualifies as wickedness according to Apostle Paul? Again, we will stay in this chapter the whole time to get the proper context of expulsion. Who are those who are wicked according to Apostle Paul? 
Let's read 9 to 11. I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. So according to Apostle Paul, what qualifies as wickedness and those who practice such should be expelled from the assembly. The Apostle Paul mentions, do not associate yourselves with the sexually Immoral, that's top on his list. Numero uno, he spoke about that before, according to verse 9. Because in the Corinthian congregation, it was a problem. So he was addressing the problem of sexual immorality. But that's not the only thing that is qualified as wickedness. What else? Greedy. What else? Idolater. Slanderer. Drunkard, swindler. What is a swindler, by the way? One who cheats you. One who doesn't speak the truth about certain agreements. That is called a swindler. And so if anyone practices such things, that person should be expelled. Now, what does it mean to be expelled? Does it mean he's expelled from the book of life in heaven? Expel from the body of Christ, the body of Yahushua? Is that what expulsion that Apostle Paul is speaking about here? Let's read verses 1 down to 2 of Corinthians 5. Now it is actually being said that there's sexual immorality among you so terrible that not even the heathen would be guilty of it. I am told that a man is sleeping with his stepmother. How then can you be proud? On the contrary, you should be filled with sadness. And the man who has done such a thing should be expelled from your fellowship. And so when the Apostle Paul says, expel the wicked man from among you, what is this expulsion all about? Is it expulsion from the body of Yahushua? What is your answer? No, because only Yahuwah can expel from the body of Yahushua. John 15, 1 down 2. Two. Is this expulsion from the book of life? No, it is Yahusha HaMashiach who will re remove people from the book of life. In the book, that's in the book of Revelation, chapter 3 and the verses 5. So the expulsion referred to by the Apostle Paul is expulsion from what? From your fellowship. Not from the body of Yahusha, but from your fellowship. Not from the book of life, but from your fellowship. Can Yahuwah God choose to remove this person from the body of Yahusha? What is your answer? Yes, that's his business, not ours. Our business is to remove someone from our group fellowship. Now, who's an example of one who should have been removed from the fellowship? Apostle Paul was writing to the Corinthians. You should have removed this person already because of his sexual immorality. It's pretty bad because he was sleeping with his stepmother. You should not be proud of that. Instead, you should be filled with sadness. And so to carry out the work of expulsion, what was the process? 
Was there a process involved to carry out this work of expulsion from the fellowship? Absolutely. Verses three down to five, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. And I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present when you were assembled in the name of our Lord Yahushua, and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Yahushua is present. Hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. According to Apostle Paul, what's the process of expelling this individual who was overtaken by sexual immorality? They were to meet as an assembly. Why? To deliberate on the matter. Who should have been there to deliberate on the matter? Apostle Paul, but apparently he could, he could not make it. And it was not necessary because he was with them in the spirit. And so even though he was not with them physically, he spoke about his judgment or his decision. What is that? He should be expelled. He should be removed from fellowship. In this assembly, when they met together to deliberate, in whose name was it done? Yahushua. And because it was gathered, they were gathered together, assembled together in the name of Yahushua, whose power is present, the power of Yahushua. So, in essence, it is the decision of Yahushua Hamashiach. There was a deliberation that was made. But what was the purpose of this expulsion? Bible says so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. So that expulsion in this instance was not so that the person would be condemned, but so that he can be saved on the day of the Lord. In other words, the expulsion was practiced so that the person can be disciplined, so that he or she can still have a chance to receive salvation on the day of the Lord. And so this process of meeting together and deciding whether or not the laws or commandments of God has been broken, what was this practice called? In the book of Exodus 18, 20 to 22, you should teach them God's commands and explain to them how they should live and what they should do. But in addition, you should choose some capable men and appoint them as leaders of the people. Leaders of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They must be God-fearing men who can be trusted and who cannot be brought. Let them serve as judges for the people on a permanent basis. They can bring all the difficult cases to you, but they themselves can decide all the smaller disputes. That will make it easier for you as they share your burden. During the days of Moses, decisions had to be made. Decisions about what? to settle disputes, to see whether or not God allows something or God forbids something. This is called the process of what again? Binding and loosing. Either God permits it or God does not permit it. And so during the days of Moses, who were assigned to make decisions concerning issues like this? Judges, those who knew the word of God, and could make proper decisions concerning what God permits and what God does not 
permit. Now, during the Christian era, this process of deliberation was this also practice. In Matthew 18, 18 to 20, I tell you the truth, the things you don't allow on earth will be the things God does not allow. And the things you allow on earth will be the things that God allows. Also, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about something and pray for it, it will be done for my for you by my Father in heaven. This is true because if two or three people come together in my name, I am there with them. Wasn't this practiced by the Corinthian church? Wasn't this what was instructed by the Apostle Paul concerning the man overtaken by sexual immorality? They were to assemble in the name of Yahusha. To do what? To deliberate. To see whether or not what this person has done, God allows or God does not allow. Is it binding or is it loosey? This is why the early Christians practiced deliberation in the name of Yahusha so that they can decide whether or not a person is to be expelled from the fellowship. Now, why was this important? Let's read one more passage concerning the issue 6 to 8. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. So according to Apostle Paul, why is it important? Why is it necessary to practice expulsion? Why must we expel the wicked? Because it can affect the entire dough. It can affect the entire body. Can you imagine someone practicing blatant wickedness and we tolerate that? What message does that communicate? It communicates that this is permissible, even though Yahuwah God strictly forbids such a thing. And so we are not living according to the holiness of our God. And so the purpose of excommunication or expulsion is to teach the brethren the seriousness of holiness and also as an act of discipline for those who have blatantly disregarded the teachings of our Father. This is why we practice expulsion. However, if there is an expulsion, it doesn't mean that we are removing their names from the book of life. Who alone can do this? God and his son, Yahusha HaMashiach. Okay. All right. Let's go to question number two. Will the children or infants who don't commit sin also perish on the day of judgment? Now, there's no one passage of scripture that will tell us that they will go to hell or go to heaven. It doesn't mention that in the Holy Scriptures. However, if we think biblically and we think about the issue, I think we can get some light from Scripture to make a kind of leaning towards one way or the other. And so according to the Holy Scriptures, why do infants die in the first place, right? Why do children die? As a matter of fact, why do people die? What do you think the answer is? Let's read the book of Romans 5, 12 to 14. When Adam sinned, sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone, for everyone's sin. 
Yes, people sin even before the law was given. But it was not counted a sin because there was not yet any law to break. Still, everyone died from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. Even those who did not obey an explicit commandment of God as Adam did. Now, Adam is a symbol, a representation of Christ who was yet to come. So why do people die? Because of sin. Even if before the, even before the law was given. And so there was no coding of what sin was. There was still death. Because sin, when Adam committed sin together with his wife Eve, death was introduced to the world. And it spread to everyone. And so it doesn't matter if one is guilty yet of sin. Because sin was introduced to the earth. Human beings have been appointed to die. This is why infants die. During the days of Noah, the ancient flood, infants and children also died and perished. And so we know because of sin, there is the problem of death. However, it's not just death that was appointed because of sin. Also, judgment. It is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. And so we, can, we know of children and infants who die, even though they did not commit Sin, because how can you commit sin if you're just an infant, right? And so they did not commit sin, but they died. However, does it mean that they're going to be judged? Because the Bible says there is death, there's also judgment. What is the rule of God concerning judgment? In Deuteronomy 24, 16, fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall the children be put to death for their fathers. The person shall be put to death for his own Sin, what death is being spoken of here. It is death according to when they will be judged in the judgment seat of God. And so when it comes to death, children who are not guilty of sin can die. When it comes to death because of judgment, well, the Bible says you shall not put to death children who do not commit sin. And so when all of us will be facing the judgment seat of God, what shall be used to judge us? Let's read the book of Romans 2, 14 and 16. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness and between themselves or thoughts accusing or else excusing them, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Yahushua Christ, according to my gospel. And so when all of us will face the judgment seat of God, what will be used to judge us? Our deeds, our works. We're all going to face the judgment seat of God. Well, how about people who've never heard of the gospel? Who've never heard of Yahushua the Christ? Who've never heard the truth of the Bible? What will happen to them? Well, Apostle Paul says concerning Gentiles who never received the law, but he said there's a law that is written where? In their hearts. So instinctively, they know the difference between right and wrong. And so they will be judged according to the law written in their hearts. And so they will either be accused or excused. Infants, on the other hand, when they will face that judgment of God, can we say that they are guilty of sin 
written in the law of their hearts. What do you say? What do you think? No, they do not know the law. They have not made any choices that they will be held accountable for. Now, one might also say, but what good did infants ever do to make them worthy of eternal life, right? They're not, they have not done anything wrong that would condemn them to go to the lake of fire. But what have they done that will give them the opportunity or to give them eternal life? Well, they have done nothing. They have not sinned and they have not done anything good. Why? Because they're infants. In situations like that, what do you think is going to bear more? Let's read the book of Romans 5, 18 to 19. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone. That's why everyone dies, including infants, right? But Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and a new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one person, one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. So concerning the infant, who has nothing to boast about concerning any good works? Can he or she still be saved? I think so. Why? Because of what Yahusha did. Think about it. If all of humanity, including infants and children, die because of the one sin of Adam, how about the one work of righteousness, the sacrifice of Yahusha HaMashiach when he died on the cross? Don't you think that has more weight when it comes to efficacy? Does that, does that not have more power so that we can say even an infant who has done nothing good will be saved because of the one act of Yahusha HaMashiach? Probably. Of course, it's not up to me to say that. That is entirely up to who? Yahuwah our God. Now, what's an example of one, an infant who died because of sin, right? Not because of the child's fault, but because of somebody else's fault. Because we live in a broken world, sometimes some another person's sin can lead to our death, right? These are the consequences of sin. Who's an example of that? Second Samuel. Uh, 12, 13, and 14, and David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against Yahuwah. Nathan replied, yes, but Yahuwah has forgiven you, and you won't die for this sin. Nevertheless, because you have shown utter contempt for Yahuwah, by doing this, your child will die. And so here we have David who sinned against Yahuwah. We all know about the sin of David, right? He committed murder, and he also committed adultery. And he tried to hide that from the people, but he was exposed by Yahuwah, our God. And so, because he repented, Yahuwah forgave him, but he has to suffer the consequences of sin. So always keep that in mind. Yes, we commit sin. We repent. Our sins can be forgiven. However, with all sin, there's always the consequence, the effect of sin. It can affect other people. This is why sin is so vile. Not only does it affect you, it also has an effect against our loved one. In this case, what did God decree? Because of the sin of David, who will die? His child is going to die. Is it the child's fault? No. Whose fault is it? David. It's a consequence of sin. However, does it mean this child is going to die as a form of judgment in the lake of fire? 
I don't think so. What's the proof? Let's keep reading. After this decree was made, what happened to David? What was his response? After Nathan returned to his home, Yahuwah sent a deadly illness to the child of David and Uriah's wife. David begged God to spare the child. He went without food and lay all night in the bare ground. The elders of his household pleaded with him to get up and eat with them, but he refused. What happened after the decree was made? A deadly illness had overtaken the child of David. And David, of course, being the father, he begged God to spare the child. Did he, felt, did he feel depressed about the situation? Absolutely. He was so depressed. He was so down. He did not want to eat. The elders of his household pleaded with him. They were worried about him because he wasn't eating. But it's understandable for David to react like this because he loved his child. And so what happened? When did the child die? 18 to 19, that on the seventh day, the child died. David's advisors were afraid to tell him. He wouldn't listen to reason while the child was ill. They said, what drastic thing will he do when we tell him the child is dead? When David saw them whispering, he realized what had happened. Is the child dead? He asked. Yes, they replied. He is dead. And so after on the seventh day, what happened to the child? Finally dies. The advisors, David's advisors were afraid to tell him because they were not, they were not sure how he was going to react. And so when David found out, that his child died, what did he do? 20, then David got up from the ground, washed himself, put on lotions, and changed his clothes. He went to the tabernacle and worshipped Yahuwah. After that, he returned to the palace and was served food and ate. So what did David do when he found out that his son had already died? He did not complain to Yahuwah, right? What did he do? He went to the tabernacle and worship Yahuwah our God. You know, if God is punishing us for something, the punishment has been dealt. Instead of complaining against Yahuwah, the best thing to do is like what David did. Worship Yahuwah our God. And so after he worshiped God, what happened to him? 21, his advisors were amazed. We don't understand you, they told him. I want to pause it for a while. Why do you think the advisors who was watch, who were they were watching David the whole week and he was depressed, perhaps even suicidal because he was not eating. So he was not himself. But this time they were surprised. We don't understand you, they told him. While the child was still living, you wept and refused to eat. But now that the child is dead, you have stopped your mourning and are eating again. So there was a drastic change in David, right? Before, he was in deep mourning. Now that the child was dead, his countenance was shining. It changed. I wonder why. I wonder perhaps maybe Yahuwah God showed him something when he worshipped him. I wonder what could that be. 22, 23. David replied, I fasted and wept while the child was alive. For I said, perhaps Yahuwah will be gracious to me and let, and let the child live. But why should I fast when he is dead? Can I bring him up again? I will go to him one day, but he cannot return to me. Perhaps Yahuwah God has revealed to him that you will see him once again. David believed in the resurrection. I don't believe this passage was referring to David being together with his son in the grave. 
because that would not be a source of inspiration and a change in countenance, right? But if God, Yahuwah God, reveals to you, you're going to see your child again one day, that will give you inspiration to keep going and to go on. And so, yes, infants, children who are not guilty, they can die. It's part of living here on earth in a broken creation. Sin has been introduced. Death is part of our reality. However, when it comes to infants dying the second death, the Bible says that the sin of the parent cannot be used to make a judgment against the child. And if the child has committed no sin, then how, what judgment will be used against the child? I believe it would, what will be used is the great work and sacrifice of Yahusha HaMashiach. But again, uh, we cannot explicitly say that an infant is going to go to heaven when Yahusha returns. That's entirely up to who? Yahuwah, our God. Okay. All right. Let's go to the next question here. Uh, next question is, here's my question. They said life is a journey. Kind of tiny font. I kind of try to fit it all in there. They said life is a journey, not a destiny. So whatever the outcome of our life it would be based on our decisions we made while we, while we journey in this life. This has been boggling me since I was a child, Paul. How about Apostle Judas? A prophecy was told that one of Yahushua's disciple or apostle will betray him, and that was Judas. That's a prophecy, and it will never be broken. Therefore, was that Judas's destiny in Matthew 26? This is written, Yahushua replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The son of man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Yahushua answered, yes, you have said so. Yahushua said, but woe to the man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Is this really Judas's destiny, predetermined destiny? Does he have a choice to change his mind? Or this happened because God already foresees the future and he knows what our weaknesses and what our choices would be. I just relate this to me or to the leaders of the church and the students who will become soldiers of God. We started as pure, unblemished disciples of Christ. I'm thinking, but will the corrupt system inside the institution change them? Or their destiny will be determined depending on what they, they have in their hearts. Sorry if my question is confusing, Paul. I'm confused in Paul. I think, I think what I really wanted to ask is life is based on the choice we make, a journey or a destiny set by God. Thank you, Paul. <laughs> that is a deep question, which touches on the never-ending debate between predestination and free will, right? Freedom of choice and predestination. Is it God who, who knows all things, already knows what we're going to do tomorrow, three months from now? He knows what we're going to say before we say it. He knows what we're going to think before we think it. Does it mean that God preordained every action that we made so that we no longer have free will or freedom to choose? I believe that all of us have been given the freedom to choose. Why? Because that's the essence of 
love. Remember, God created man because of his what? Love. He wanted man's love. And so you cannot have love unless you have freedom of choice, right? Think about that. Why is your spouse's love so wonderful and powerful? Why is your child's love so wonderful and powerful? Because they can choose not to love you, right? I mean, if they had no choice, if they were forced, if they were robots and they were programmed to love you, and that's it, they had no free choice, that love is worthless. This is why free will is at the essence of love. Without free will, there's no love. Without freedom to choose, there is no love. God created the world out of love. This is why the Bible says God is love because God has given human beings the freedom to choose. And so when God made mankind, he made humankind in his image with the freedom to choose and with that, the freedom to love or to reject. And so according to the Holy Scriptures, do we have freedom of choice? And according to the Holy Scriptures, is our life uh, based on our decisions or is it based on destiny? Let's read what it says in Galatians 6, 7 to 10. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows, the one who sows to please a sinful nature. From that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become, let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So does God give us a freedom to choose? Yes. But once we make the choice, Apostle Paul says God cannot be mocked. What does that mean? It means once we make the choice, we have to be ready for the consequences of our choice. And so if we choose to sow in order to please the sinful nature, what can we expect we shall reap? Bible says destruction. But if we choose to sow to please the spirit, what can we expect to receive? We will reap eternal life. And so life is a journey. And in this journey called life, we are called upon to make choices. But for every choice we make, there's going to be a corresponding effect. Sometimes the effect comes right away. Sometimes the effect will not be manifested until weeks, months, perhaps even years later down the road. This is why what is the instruction of the Apostle Paul concerning those who want a good life for themselves? Bible says, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. And so God gives us the freedom to choose the kind of life we have. And so if our life today is not the life that we wanted, who should we blame? Unfortunately, according to scriptures, how do people ruin their life and who do they blame for that? Proverbs 19.3, some people ruin themselves by their own stupid actions and then blame Yahuwah. Isn't that true? They ignore Yahuwah, God's instructions. They make up their own choices on how to live their own life. And then they end up in trouble. They end up ruining their life. And who do they blame? Yahuwah, our God. So the Bible tells us we have been given the freedom to make our own actions. However, our actions will determine what kind of life we're going to 
have. And so we need to own up. We need to be responsible for our own actions. What's the proof that we have freedom of choice? The book of 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And so if we don't have freedom of choice, when we appear before the judgment seat of Christ and we did something good, we can say, well, God made me do that. If we did something bad, we can say, well, God made me do that. And so what's the purpose of judgment if we had no freedom to choose? The fact that we're going to be judged, it means there's going we have freedom of choice. And we will be held accountable to whatever choices we make while in the body, whether good or bad. Now, having said that, yes, we have freedom to choose. But is there also predestination? Yes. Well, what is predestined by God? Let's find out. The book of Ephesians 1, 4 to 11. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Yahushua Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be to be put into effect when the time when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we are also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Is there such a thing as predestination? Yes. What was predestined by God? His plan, his purpose. You see, before he created human beings, what did he already know? That we are going to commit sin. And so before he created human beings, what did he plan for? What did he create according to his plan and purpose that he predestined even before the creation of the world? His plan for the redemption of mankind. And what is this plan about? How can man be redeemed? Through Yahusha the Christ. And so according to the plan of God, what is predestined to happen, pre-programmed to happen, preordained to happen. There's going to be a Christ, the Son of God, who is going to die for our sins. That's number one. Number two, there's going to be a bringing together of all things under the headship of who? Yahusha, our Christ. So this plan of God to have his son die on the cross and to bring people under him was predetermined by Yahuwah God. It's a plan, the Logos, that he used before the creation of mankind. And so what was predetermined is the plan and purpose of God to have having, a, having Yahusha. But human beings were given free will. And so because Yahuwah God, has given free will 
and at the same time predetermined his purpose and plan for mankind through Yahushua the Christ, what is God able to do? Let's read the book of Isaiah, chapter 46, 9 to 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end for him, the beginning. And from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. According to scriptures, what is God able to do that no other, no other person, no other thing or whatever that no one else can do? What, what can God do that no one else can do? Bible says, declaring the end from the beginning. In other words, he can see what's going to happen in the future. How is he able to do that? Does he travel in time forward Then he travels back in time past? Is that how he does it? Why is God able to know the end from the beginning? In the book of Psalms 90 verse 2, because the, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are gone. How is God able to tell us what's going to happen in the end from the beginning? That's because Yahuwah God is from everlasting to everlasting. What does that mean? It means God has no beginning, has no end. What does that mean? It means God is outside space and time. In other words, God is outside creation. When God created us, he was already existing. When God created time, he was already existing. He had no beginning. Do you see the difference? We, as human beings, we are in creation. He is outside creation. He is beyond creation because he's the one who created all things. Now, that is the dynamic that we have between God, who is eternal, and we, who are temporal. And because of that, it can create certain paradoxes, right? And so in God's eternity, in God's plan, what did he predetermine? That there's going to be his son who is going to die. And through his death, we as human beings can receive salvation. Now, according also to the plan of God, how is Yahushua's death going to pan out? Let's read the book of Acts 2, 22, 23. People of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Yahushua, the Nazarene, by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. But God knew what would happen, and his prearranged plan was carried out when Yahushua was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. And so what was part of God's plan and purpose concerning Yahushua, who would die on the cross for the redemption of man? According to his plan, he is to be betrayed. And according to his plan, what who would be the one to betray him? In the book of Acts 1, verse 16, brothers, he said, the scriptures had to be fulfilled concerning Judas, who guided those who arrested Yahusha. This was predicted long ago by the Holy Spirit, speaking through King David. And so according to the Holy Scriptures, what had to happen concerning Judas? Bible says... The scriptures had to be fulfilled concerning Judas. What had to be fulfilled? Someone had to betray who? Yahushua, our Christ. 
Wait a minute. So if it was the plan of God for Yahusha, the king, to be betrayed, does it mean that Judas had no choice? Well, actually, he did have a choice. Then why did he end up becoming the one who would betray Yahusha if he had the choice? And if he had the choice, why does the Bible say the scriptures had to be fulfilled concerning Judas? Let's find out first in the book of John, chapter 12, 2 down to 3, what was in the heart of Judas. In the book of John 12, 2 to 3, at dinner, as a dinner was prepared in Yahushua's honor, Martha served. Lazarus was among those who ate with him. Then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard. Does that smell good? Essence of nard. I wonder what that is. And she anointed Yahushua's feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance. And so at dinner, in Yahushua's honor, who was there? Martha, Lazarus. Martha had a very expensive jar of perfume, right? What did she do with that jar of expensive perfume? She used that to anoint Yahushua's feet. Oh, right? So, so Mary took uh, the ounce of jar of expensive perfume and wiped his feet with her hair using the expensive perfume. And so when this was happening, someone who was looking at the event had a reaction. You know who he was? Judas. Who could it be? Judas. Let's read four to six. But Judas is carried. The disciple who would soon betray him said that perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. Not that he cared for the poor. He was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. Wow, it's tough to be in charge of money. Huh? It's, it's kind of difficult to be the one who has authority over money because it makes you prone to different kinds of things. And Judas, his heart was revealed in this particular scenario. Mary thought nothing of the money because of her love for Yahushua. But Judas, pretending that he really cared for the poor, he, he practically berated Mary and said, you know what, you're just wasting all that money you could have given to the poor. But in actuality, the Bible says he was a thief and he had, he had a love for money. So we can see Judas Iscariot, two things about him. Number one, he lacked faith in Yahushua. He did not really have true faith in Yahushua. Number two, he was a lover of money. Remember what the Apostle Paul said about, the, about loving money? Loving money is the root of all evil. And we can see this played out again and again and again in the history of mankind, right? From the very beginning up until today, we can see how a love for money, a love for power can lead to one's destruction. And Judas, that was his problem. He had a problem with money. And because of this, what did this love for money lead him to do? Mark 14, 10 to 11. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12 disciples, went to the leading priest to arrange to betray Yahushua to them. 
they were delighted when they heard why he had come. And they promised to give him money. So he began looking for an opportunity to betray Yahushua. And so because of Judas's lack of faith in Yahushua, and because of his love for money, it was easy for him to betray who? Yahushua. Did he have a choice in the matter? Yes. Did he have to do this? No. Why did he do it? Because he loved money. And because of his love for money, what did he begin to do? He began to look for an opportunity to betray Yahushua. And when would that opportunity come? The book of Matthew 26, 23 to 25, Yahushua replied. This was their Passover, right? And they had a Passover. This is what happened. Yahushua replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The son of man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. Yahushua answered, Yes, it is you. And so when was that opportunity? It was during the Passover when he was to be arrested because Judas would eventually betray him. Did, did um, Judas have a choice? He's always had a choice. But what did Yahushua say? In verse 24, he said, The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. Take note. Yahushua already knows that Judas is going to betray him. How does he know that? Because Yahuwah God Tells him what's going to happen. How does Yahuwah God know? He is outside of what? Creation. Something happens when someone eternal outside of creation intersects what is within creation. Do you know what, what happens when that interaction takes place? When the eternal interacts with someone who is created like you and I, what happens? It creates certain paradoxes, illusions, some things that you cannot explain with our human mind. Like what? How can uh, Judas be have freedom to choose to betray Yahusha or not? And at the same time, Yahusha is telling him, you're going to be the one to betray me. See, those paradoxes exist. Because we are created. And the revelation came from one who was the creator who lives outside of creation. This is why there is this illusion, this illusion of paradox that cannot be explained. And we would never be able to explain that because we are within creation. Nevertheless, does it mean that Judas was destined to go to hell? Maybe not. Why? Because that same night when uh, Yahusha was betrayed by Judas, there was another person who betrayed Judas, um, who betrayed Yahusha. You know who, who that was? That same night, someone was also destined to betray Yahusha. 
Who was that? We read 26, 23 to 25. Let's read that 31, 35. Then Yahushua told them, this very night, you will all, all of them, you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. I tell you the truth, Yahushua answered. This very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. And so who was also destined to betray Yahushua? <laughs> even Peter. And Peter even said, even if I have to die with you, I will never do that. But sure enough, what did Peter do? He betrayed Yahusha. He denied Yahusha and disowned him three times before the rooster crowed. Did that happen? Yes. You can go ahead and read the rest of the chapter. So Judas and Peter on that same night, they were both in a way, I mean, there's actually it's apples to oranges comparisons, but in a way they both betrayed who? Yahusha, right? But what happened to Peter? He repented. And he returned to Yahusha. And he eventually became known as the rock, right? He eventually became known as the elder. He eventually became known as the apostle, Peter, who was a close friend of Yahusha. But with Judas, it was different. Why? Well, in Matthew 27, 3 down to 5, when Judas who had betrayed him, saw that Yahushua was condemned. He was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? I replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. And so could Judas have Repair the relationship he had with Yahushua? Possibly, right? We're not discounting that. See, the problem with Judas is, yes, he felt remorse, but he did not repent. What did he do instead because of his remorse? He hanged himself. That's not repentance. What's the difference between repentance and remorse? In 2 Corinthians 7.10, godly sorrow brings repentance. It leads to salvation. And leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. You see the reason why Judas had worldly sorrow, remorse, not repentance. Because he did not really believe in Yahushua. That's the only difference between Peter and Judas. A lack of faith. You see, Judas never really believed in Yahushua. But Peter did. And so when one truly has faith and believes in Yahusha, even when he fails Yahusha, if you really have faith in him, that he will take you back, then you will have repentance. And this leads to salvation. This is why, brethren, even if we fail Yahusha, don't ever think that your, your situation is hopeless. It's never hopeless when we are dealing with our king and our savior. Is always willing to receive to himself those who are truly repentant. Okay?
And in connection with this question about uh, Judas, uh, the highlighted part, I just relate this to me or to the leaders of the church and the students who will become soldiers of God. They started as pure, unblemished disciples of Christ. I'm thinking, Paul, will the corrupt system inside the institution change them or their destiny will be determined depending on what they have in their hearts? So brethren, I want you to think about this. All of us, right? We can start out, quote unquote, pure and unblemished. Like what? Like children, right? Like children, pure and unblemished. You go to Yahusha, you go to Yahuwah, they take care of you. But eventually, what happens to the heart? This is a pattern that has been seen again and again and again throughout Scripture. And this is something we need to be aware of so that it will not happen to us. What is that? The book of Isaiah 1, 2 to 4. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. For Yahuwah has spoken, I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. Perhaps some parents can relate to that, right? When they were young, maybe five, six, seven. You are nourishing them, taking care of them, but they become teenagers. They have a world of their own, and they forget all about you. How many here can relate, <laughs> right? God is saying the same thing. He's speaking about Israel, his people, how he nourished them and brought them up as children, but eventually they would rebel against him. Verse 3, the ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people does not uh, do not consider. Alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors. They have forsaken Yahuwah. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backward. So this is the pattern that, that, that we can find throughout Scripture. In the beginning, you have this dependence upon God because you could, do, you could not live otherwise. You were completely dependent upon God. But after the blessing comes, you forget who? God. That's the temptation. That's the test that we all face. When we have been blessed by God, and then we forget him, we forsake him. And so brethren, so that we will not follow that pattern, we need to always realize and understand this truth. We always will need Yahuwah God. Never ever think that you will outgrow God. He has blessed you all the more. We should hold on to Yahuwah God. We must never ever turn backward, okay? All right, let's go to another question. Hello, Paul, brother. This is my question. Does the Bible say anything about vaccination? Wow. I work in the healthcare and social care sector, but I refuse to take the COVID-19 vaccine. All my colleagues put their faith and trust in the vaccine, but I put my faith and trust in God. I am so appalled that none of them can even think or remember that there is Gone. So whoever uh, sent this question, he or she obviously has a lot of faith in whom? Yahuwah God. Is it good to place our faith and trust in Yahuwah God? Yes. Absolutely. However, does it mean that if we place our faith and hope in God, that we're not allowed to get a vaccine? That it, does it mean that if we get a vaccine, for example, COVID-19 vaccine, 
Does it diminish our faith in God, our trust in God by doing so? It's something that we need to think about because I know there's a lot of brethren, a lot of people who do love God, but are thinking and saying to themselves, is it a lack of faith to choose to receive vaccination for COVID-19? Well, first of all, what we need to understand is this. Is Yahuwah and Yahushua, and Yahushua are they against uh, physicians? Are they against doctors? What do you think? No. Let's read in the book of Matthew 9, 12. When Yahushua heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but, uh, but those who are sick. Does Yahushua condemn uh, a physician? No. He even speaks highly of them. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And so according to Yahushua, if one is sick, it's permissible. It's good to seek the assistance of a physician. Well, how about medication? Is it good to receive and take medication? In the book of Proverbs 17.22, a merry heart does good like medicine, but a broken spirit dries the bone. So the Bible speaks highly about medicine. It does good things like a merry heart. And so the Bible approves of physicians. The Bible approves of medication. And who is an example of one in the Christian era of a physician who used medicines? Colossians 4 verse 14. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Who is an example of one who is a physician? Luke, the one who wrote the gospel according to Luke. He happens to be a medical doctor, a physician, and he accompanied Apostle Paul in many travels. And Apostle Paul learned a few things from him. That's why he even said it's good to have a little wine, right, for your physical ailment. No doubt he got that from his physician friend, Luke. And so we can see Luke was a physician. Yahushua approved of physicians. Yahuwah approved of medication. However, whenever we seek the help of physicians, whenever we take medication for our physical ailment, what should we always never forget? The book of 2 Chronicles 16, 12 to 13. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa was afflicted with a disease in his feet. Though his disease was severe, even in his illness, he did not seek help from Yahuwah, but only from the physicians. Then in the 41st year of his reign, Asa died and rested with his fathers. Here we have an example of a king who was afflicted with disease. Perhaps the reason why he was afflicted with disease was so that he would learn to seek whose help? Yahuwah. But that's not what he did. What did he do? He sought only the help from physicians. What was the mistake of Asa? He only sought the help of physicians, but not the help of Yahuwah our God. And so if we take medication, if we take vaccination, if we seek the help of a physician and we forget God, then that would not be good. This is why if I were you, you know, if there's medic you know, medicine that's available, if there's a doctor that's available, go ahead and get their help in consultation. But what should we do first? We should pray first, right? We should ask for Yahuwah's help first. We should ask for Yahuwah's blessing first so that 
Yahuwah can use the physician and even the medication as instruments. Because in actuality, God heals everyone, right? It's not really the medicine. It's Yahuwah God who heals all things. Who's a good example of one? When he was deathly ill, he sought the help of God, who trusted God. Do you know of a good example? Who is that? Isaiah 38, 1 to 3, about that time, Hezekiah became deathly ill, and the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, went to visit him. He gave the king this message. This is what Yahuwah says. Set your affairs in order, for you are going to die. You will not recover from this illness. When Hezekiah heard this, he turned his face to the wall and prayed to Yahuwah. Remember, O Yahuwah, how I have always been faithful to you and have served you single-mindedly, always doing what pleases you. He broke down and wept bitterly. Who's a good example of one who, when he became deathly ill, remembered Yahuwah God, King Hezekiah. Very different from Asa, right? Asa forgot God, but Hezekiah depended only on who? Yahuwah, our God, because he had trust and faith in his God, Yahuwah. Did God listen to his prayer? Then this message came to Isaiah from Yahuwah. Go back to Hezekiah and tell him this is what Yahuwah the God of your ancestor, David, says, I have heard your prayer and seen your tears. I will add 15 years to your life, and I will rescue you and this city from the king of Assyria. Yes, I will defend this city. So does God respond to the prayer of Hezekiah? Yes. In fact, Yahuwah God says, not only will you heal, I'm going to add how many years? 15 years to your life. And after God declared that, what did he tell Isaiah to tell the king to do? Isaiah 38, 21, Isaiah said to Hezekiah's servants, make an ointment from figs and spread it over the boy. And Hezekiah will recover. Did Yahuwah God say he will recover? Yes or no? Yeah. Yes. Did Yahuwah God say do not use any more medication? No. In fact, Isaiah told his servant to go use medication, right? What was considered medication during that time? Ointment from figs. And so the servant was instructed to use medication in order to address the physical ailment, the sickness of Hezekiah. And so medication was used, but the one Hezekiah turned to first was who? Yahuwah our God. And so here Hezekiah he had faith and trust in God, but at the same time, he also used medication, right? Of course, our medication today is much different, right? It's far more advanced because we have grown in knowledge. Is it God's will that we grow in knowledge when it comes to science and medication? I believe so. Why? In Genesis 1, 27 to 28, so God created man in his own image in the image of god he created him male and female he created them then god blessed them and god said to them be fruitful and multiply fill the earth and subdue it have dominion over the fish of the sea over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth so what does yahuwah god instruct adam after he was created well the bible says you are to subdue the earth to be fruitful and multiply you have to have dominion over everything that has been created 
In other words, the earth was given by God for who? For man. God created the earth for man. Why? Bible says that God created man in his own image. And so there are aspects of God that is in us that he wants us to exercise because by doing so, we are fulfilling an aspect of our life that is like God's. And I believe that is in the part of that is discovering the world, naming the animals, discovering things and using, making use of these discoveries about the earth and creation, right? It's part of why God has gave us a mind and an intellect for curiosity, for discovery, so that our knowledge will grow and increase. This is why when the field of medicine, the field of science increased, it is because of God's blessing upon mankind, giving us the capacity to be able to make discoveries. You agree with that? It's a gift coming from God. However, when God has blessed us with knowledge of different kinds, what does he remind us of? Let's look at Timothy 6, 2021. Timothy, keep safe what has been entrusted to your care. Avoid the profane talk and foolish arguments of what people wrongly call knowledge. For some have claimed to possess it, and as a result, they have lost the way of faith. God's grace be with you. Oh, according to Apostle Paul, when it comes to knowledge, there is something called that is not that is wrongly called knowledge. What is that? Any kind of knowledge that leads you away from the faith. And so when it comes to knowledge, and because we know knowledge is increasing, this is because of God's blessing upon humankind so that we can progress as a civilization, but always keeping in mind that knowledge that takes us away from the true faith is not properly called knowledge. And so we need to be aware of that. Well, what kind of knowledge is from God? James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect present comes from heaven. It comes down from God, the creator of the heavenly lights who does not change or cause darkness by turning. And so knowledge that results in good, that is a gift from who? Yahuwah, our God. You know what's a good example of a good gift? Have you heard of penicillin before? You know, the discovery of penicillin was by accident. By accident. Fleming, right, accidentally discovered it. But I don't believe in accidents. Who do you think was responsible for that? I believe Yahuwah God. Why? Because so many people were dying during that time, right? In fact, do you know how many people, how many lives were saved because of this accidental discovery of penicillin? During World War I, the death rate from bacterial pneumonia was 18%. In World War II, thanks to penicillin, the death, the death rate from the same condition fell to less than 1%. Wow. This enabled many soldiers to return home in good health. It is estimated that penicillin has saved at least 200 million lives since it, its first use as a medicine in 1942. You know, 
in, in many of the discoveries concerning medicine, a lot of it came from Leviticus. God's knowledge being applied by people who understood the sciences, created vaccines and medical practices that save countless of lives. Knowledge that comes from whom? God. Penicillin. Did that come from God? Yeah. Why? It saved so many lives. I believe if it's saving lives, it is from God. And so when we think about vaccination, right? When we think about COVID vaccination, if it's going to save lives, do you think possibly it would be good for us? Could it be the result of God's blessing upon mankind? Could be, right? It's likely probably is. Now, am I going to preach here and tell you you should get this vaccination? I'm not going to say that. Why? I'm not a doctor, right? It's not my position to tell you to get vaccinated or not. But I do know what Apostle Paul says about what we need to do with our physical body. What is that? Thessalonians 5.23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of the Lord Yahusha, the Christ. And so if we are thinking about getting a vaccination for COVID-19, I ask you this. Will that vaccination help you preserve your body blameless? Will it help you? Because if it will help preserve our physical body, I think it's a good thing, right? But how can we make decisions concerning that? Because after all, I don't know anything about, I don't know much about COVID, the COVID-19 vaccine. I don't know, because I'm not a physician, how it would react to your physical makeup or your genetic makeup. All of us are different, right? This is why, what is the advice of scripture concerning medication? Because there's some medication that's not good for your body. Instead of preserving your body blameless, it corrupts your body. Am I right? I'm not in a position to tell you which medication will do that for your body or for your type. However, there are people who have been endowed with knowledge and in those things that can make decisions for you. This is why the Bible tells us in Proverbs 15, 22, Plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. Why not get many opinions, many advice from your physicians, from your provider, right? And then make your decision, calling upon who first? Yahuwah, our God. And so that's what I would advise. You're thinking about getting COVID-19? Is it wrong to get it? I don't think so. Do we say that we lack faith if we get it? No. Because we're placing our faith in God first, using this as an instrument. However, there are people who avoid the COVID-19 vaccine because of a certain belief, which is what I want to discuss before we pray today. Is that okay? There are people who avoid the COVID-19 vaccine because they believe the COVID-19 vaccine is the mark of the beast. <laughs> Is what we need to ask the question, is the COVID-19 vaccine the mark of the beast? Because there are people, believe it or not, who have this thinking that it is the fulfillment of Revelation 13, 16, 17. So let's read Revelation 13, 16, 17. He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive the vaccine. That's, that's what they're saying, right? To receive a mark on his right hand 
or on his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. So according to certain people, and this is actually gaining a little ground, gaining some momentum now, this belief out there that the, the, vac the COVID-19 vaccine is fulfillment of the mark. So according to them, uh, time will come when the world government will force everyone to receive the vaccine. And if you don't accept the vaccine, you cannot buy or sell. And so how are they able to make that conclusion? Because when you read Revelation 13, 16, and 17 at face value, do you read vaccination there? Can you, do you read COVID-19? No, what we read is about a mark, a mark on the right hand or on the forehead, right? So how do they use Revelation 13, 16 to 17 and then make the conclusion that the fulfillment is uh, the vaccine? Well, they say that the word mark, the word mark, this is a close-up of the sharp palisade. See the picture, you see the cones, the tree-like cones there? That's supposed, to, that's supposed to be micro needles. And they're saying that represents the sharp palisade. Now, what on earth is a sharp palisade? Well, they say when you go Revelation, when you look at Revelation 13, 16, 17, and you look up the Greek word for mark, right? Because it says that the mark of the beast, right? The mark, they say, is from the Greek word charagma, which means scratch or stamp. And comes from the root word for, and the, the, the root word for charagma is charax and can mean sharpen to a point or palisade. Such will go into the vaccine recipient's body at the same time and that vaccine mark, uh, and then, and that vaccine mark ID will be needed to buy or sell. This is powerful corroborating proof that the mark, the scratch or stamp, of the beast is coming from the micro needle vaccine. Does that make sense? <laughs> All right. So according to the explanation in Revelation 13, the mark, it means some sharp point, which is the micro needle that's going to be used when you're vaccinated with the COVID-19 vaccine. Okay. That's the first part. That's the first part of your argument. Another part, they said in Revelation, they, they jumped to Revelation 18.23. How did they, how they do that? I don't know, but they do anyway. <laughs> the light of the lamp shall not shine in you anymore, and the voice of bridegroom and bride shall not be heard in you anymore. For your merchants were, were the great men of the earth. For by your sorcery, all the nations were deceived. Very interesting. They use the word sorcery to deceive the people so that they will accept the mark of the beast. And so they looked at, they used the word sorcery and they look it up in the Greek and it is the meaning of the Greek. It, it, the Greek, by the way, is pharmakia, which we, what we discussed before, right? Pharmakia, which means what? You look at the definition, oh, look at this. The use or the, the administering of drugs, Poisoning, sorcery, magical arts, uh, metaphorically, the deceptions and seductions in 
idolatry. And so when you go back to Revelation 18.23, sorcery represents what? The administration of drugs. Okay. And so they make the conclusion the mark will be a pharmaceutical tattoo with sharp palisade needles that is stamped on the right hand or forehead delivering the poison. Why poison? Because of the Greek word pharmakeia in Roman numeral two, poisoning, right? So it's a drug that poisons you and it's administered by through the palisade needles, micro needles that is, you, uh, that is uh, injected or administered to your right hand or forehead. Not only that, and supposedly, part of the argument, believe it or not, supposedly by giving you this, uh, this poison, your DNA will change so that you become inhuman. So it will change your DNA so that you become like a Nephilim, an inhuman, which is why you will not be saved. Instead, you will perish in the lake of fire because once you inject uh, this COVID-19 vaccine, it's going to change you from being human to being a non-human. And Yahusha came not to say to save human beings, not non-humans, not meta-humans, right? So if you take this injection, you're no longer going to be human, so you're not going to be saved. Instead, you're going to perish in the lake of fire. And so let's go ahead and discuss this piece by piece. Is this biblical? I mean, is this really what the Bible is telling us? For example, the mark. The mark will be pharmaceutical. Uh, the mark is a pharmaceutical tattoo with sharp palisade needles. Let's look into that. Revelation 13, 16 to 17, they claim that the mark represents micro needles. In the Greek word, what was used for mark is charagma. When we look at its usage, this is what it says, a stamp, an imprinted mark, the mark branded upon horses. Thing, carved, sculpture, graven work of idolatrous images. It doesn't mention anything about pointy things or palisades, right? It just simply means a mark. Now, let for the sake of argument, let's just say, let's just pretend it does say palisade, pointy things or needles. Does it mean that that is the fulfillment of Revelation 13, 16? Well, how... Is uh, the uh, COVID-19 vaccine administered anyways? Is it through micro needles that will inject you with a microchip? Is that how it's done? No. I mean, how is it done? According to DHEC, Department of Health and Environmental Control, how will COVID-19 vaccines be administered? COVID-19 vaccines will be administered by intramuscular IM injection, a shot in, the arm, it's not going to use micro needles. It's not going to inject you with some kind of biomedical chip that you can trace and can be connected to a computer or a network of computers because they're saying you're going, they're going to be able to detect whether or not you have received the COVID-19 injection by some kind of scanner. And so you know how you go to the hospital now before you can get in, they scan you on the forehead, right? What's the purpose of that scan? Temperature, right? And so they're saying they're going to develop a scanner so that when you, before you go to any place, they're going to scan you. And if you have the vaccine, it's going to indicate there that you got the vaccine electronically. They're going to scan your forehead. That's why it's a sign on your right hand and the forehead. They're going to scan your forehead, right? 
And if you're not, I mean, if it says that you're not scanned, or if, if it says that you did not receive the vaccine, well, you cannot go to the mall. You cannot go to our store. You cannot go to our restaurant because you did not receive the vaccine. Therefore, they control what they buy and sell, right? Does that make any sense, right? First of all, how is it administered? Injection in the arm, like other vaccines, like other shots. There are no microchips being injected, okay? What is being injected? We're gonna find out later on, but we can assure you it's not a microchip, okay? Next, they say it's stamped on the right hand or forehead delivering the poison. First of all, it's not in the right hand. It's not in the forehead. Where do you get injected? The arm, right? Not the right hand, not the forehead, in the arm. And does it deliver poison? Is the vaccine considered a drug that is poisonous? Because how did they come up with this idea that the mark will deliver poison? Well, they quote Revelation 18, 23 and cite and look at the word sorcery, right? Well, how did they get to Revelation 18, 23 from Revelation 13? Because in Revelation 13, who was the one giving the mark? The beast. Here, who was the one giving sorcery or, or deceiving people with sorcery? Who is it? Merchants. Who are these merchants? What is this passage all about? Revelation 18, 21, 23. Then a mighty angel took up a stone, like a great millstone, and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found anymore. The light of a lamp shall not shine in you anymore, and the voice of bridegroom and bride shall not be heard in you anymore. For your merchants were the great men of the earth, for by your sorcery, all the nations were deceived. And so these merchants were from the great city of Babylon, not the beast. And so the sorcery being performed here is different from the mark of the beast. They are two different things. But let's say they're the same, just for the sake of argument, okay? Let's say that the sorcery mentioned here is the same thing as the mark. What is the meaning of sorcery again? They look at the drugs, the poisoning, the sorcery, the deception. What do you notice about these drugs? These are potions, right? That when administered affects the way you think. And so it's poisonous because it affects adversely the way you think. And so it has an effect cognitively. That's why it's called witchcraft and sorcery and magical craft. It affects the way you think. This is what we discussed before when we talked about drugs in our past study, right? And so it doesn't have a physical effect. It has a mental effect. Deceptions and seductions in idolatry. It's not supposed to produce a physical effect. But when you get a vaccination from COVID for COVID-19, are you getting a drug that affects you mentally? No, you get a drug that affects you physically, not cognitively. So there are two different things. It should not be considered what? Sorcery. It should not be considered drugs that affect the mind, okay? Let's look at the last one. This is really funny. Uh, which will change your DNA, making you in human. Now, before we 
show you how this is preposterous, let's first understand well, what's the difference between DNA and protein, right? All of us have DNA. What is the DNA? Well, the DNA basically is the molecule that has the blueprint or the code to make proteins and proteins is what we're made of. All of our tissues, all of our, all of our enzymes are made of what? Proteins, we are made of protein. Without protein, there's no life, we're made of protein. The code to make protein comes from DNA. We all have DNA in our cells. If you look at the screen, we have the DNA there. So how, do, how does the DNA produce protein? First, there is something called a polymerase that will go through the entire strand of DNA. It's gonna get all the code for the proteins, right? As it reads the code for the proteins, it generates messenger RNA, mRNA. So as it finishes the code, it goes through the code and it produces a string of mRNA, the mRNA will go to a ribosome. That's the factory. It gets the code from the mRNA and it produces strings together peptides to, to create protein. This is how you get protein from DNA. It is through mRNA. The DNA that we have, is it being changed when we get the vaccination? Do we become metahuman when we receive this vaccination? I mean, what is this? vaccine all about? Anyways, what does it do in our body? I got this from, uh, what is that play? Uh, the uh, control, the, the Center for Disease Control, CDC? Yeah, COVID-19 mRNA vaccines give instructions for ourselves to make a harmless piece of what is called the spike protein. The spike protein is found on the surface of the virus that causes COVID-19. COVID-19 mRNA vaccines are given in the upper arm muscle. Once the instructions, mRNA, are inside the immune cells, the cells use them to make the protein piece. After the protein piece is made, the cell breaks down the instructions and gets rid of them. Next, the cell displays the protein piece on its surface. Our immune systems recognize that the protein doesn't belong there and begin building an immune response and making antibodies like what happens in natural infection against COVID-19. At the end of the process, our bodies have learned how to protect against future infection. The benefit of mRNA vaccines, like all vaccines, is those vaccinated gain this protection without ever having to risk the serious consequences of getting sick with COVID-19. So how does the vaccine work? Does it change the DNA? No, how does the vaccine work? It injects us with messenger RNA. What does the messenger RNA do? It creates a code. It's a code for how to make certain proteins. Proteins unique to COVID-19. What's the purpose of making these proteins unique to COVID-19? So that when they are present in your body, guess what? The immune cells will start making immunity against that. So that whenever a COVID-19 enters your body, it already has immunity. And so it will have the immune response, making antibodies. And so you are protected from the virus. After the, the protein has been made, what happens to the mRNA? It, it is dissolved. It's no longer in your body. So does your DNA change? Do you somehow change it? Your, hum, your humanity is different now? No. Do you get an implant or a microchip in your body? No, it disappears. 
right? It's no longer there. This is why when you receive the vaccination, it doesn't change your DNA. It just helps your body produce an immune response to the protein unique to COVID-19 to battle the COVID-19 virus in the event it does enter your body, okay? But so when we look at the reason why they believe that the mark of the beast is the, the result of, uh, or is, is COVID-19, we know it's not based upon reality and it's not based upon the scriptures. In fact, if we go back, like what we told you before, be careful when people use scripture, but take it out of context because they can make scripture appear whatever they want. And so let's go back to Revelation 13, 15, and 18. Does it really talk about the vaccine? Let's read 15 to, uh, to 18. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, and the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all, both great and small, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. And that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the name or, or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man. His number is 666. So if it's true that the mark of the beast is indeed the vaccine for COVID-19, then you have to explain well, what is the name of that beast? Because those who receive the mark worship and have the name of the beast. So who is that beast that they worship? As far as I know, this beast will appear, the final iteration of this beast during the tribulation. Are we in the tribulation? I don't think so. We're not yet in the quote-unquote great tribulation then how then can the mark of the beast be the vaccine? Well, if the vaccine is indeed the mark on the right hand and on the forehead, how does that explain buying or selling? Does it really mean if a sensor will alarm, you're not going to be allowed to buy anything? What does it mean to worship the beast? How do you get the number 666? From that. And most of all, because those who teach this, they really endanger people who might benefit from the vaccine. Can you imagine someone who's really sick and they're about to die, but because they believe that the mark of the beast is the vaccine, and so they don't take the vaccine and then they die? Do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? This is why we have to be careful with certain preachers who teach things out of context. Because when you look at the context of this passage, it tells us one thing. Whoever has the mark of the beast worships the beast. Not only do they worship the beast, do you know who else they worship? In Revelation 13, the final passage of our studies, so they worship the dragon who gave authority to the beast. And they worship the beast saying, who is like the beast who is able to make war with him? Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth 
and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon, and he exercises all authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Bible says those who have this mark of the beast, they worship the dragon and they also worship the beast. So if you take the vaccine, does it mean you're now a worshiper of the beast and the dragon? I don't think that's the way it works. The Bible tells us that those who have the mark of the beast are going to perish in the lake of fire because they have that mark and because they worship the image of the beast. That's in Revelation 14. But those who, the countless of people who receive the vaccination, they are not worshiping the beast. They are not worshiping the dragon. In fact, many of them believe in Yahusha. They believe in the Christ. This is why when we look at the context of the scriptures, it tells us what it means, what it means to have the mark of the beast. It simply means that you are loyal. The mark of the beast is that you are loyal to the beast. Not that you have some kind of physical mark that will represent a, a tattoo that will inject some kind of poison in you, making you unworthy of salvation. That is just dangerous preaching and irresponsible preaching of the word of Yehovah God. Brethren, we have to take the Bible within its context. Don't take it out of its context. Because when you do that, it can be very dangerous, brethren. Let us always do what is right. Always look at the context of the scripture. Check the chapter and check the the entire Bible. And in this case, look at the claims that they're making. <laughs> the claims that they're making is not based upon reality. Okay, that's our lesson for tonight. Let's go ahead and stand and we shall pray. Almighty and merciful Father, yes, Father. thank you for your guidance and mercy. Yes, You are indeed a compassionate Father. Yes. And you have blessed the world with wisdom and knowledge. Amen. You have allowed us to progress in certain fields. Yes, Many people have been delivered from sickness. Yes. Because you have blessed physicians and doctors and medicines. Yes, thank you for that, O oh God. Amen. Yet we do not place our hope and faith in them. Yes. We place our hope and trust in only you. Yes, because you are the creator of our life. You are the healer of our bodies. Amen. And so at this hour, we, we ask you, Father, yes. please have mercy upon your people. Yes, Help us Father. to understand your holy words yes. and to put into practice by means of faith yes. everything that you have taught us. Amen. Yahushua, our king, thank you so yes, much. Lord. Because you are with us at all times. Yes. Help us to understand the will of our Father. Yes. Help us to worship you and the Father yes. and help us to devote our life, to devote ourselves to you at all times. Amen. Father, please continue to watch over our steps yes. and bless us with the wisdom that we need. Amen. We ask everything, Father, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Yahushua HaMashiach. Amen. Amen.